There are some disciplines that are doing really well uh, and are making good inroads and if anything have more women than men, but then there are others which are very much very, very far behind and possibly based on current, um, current practices and current uh, initiatives, I suppose, will still never reach gender equity. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this podcast, I want to continue my focus on communication of science and gender issues in STEM fields. The previous podcast on this series, I surveyed women going into the field of science, as well as a professional female engineer, to get their opinions uh, anecdotally on the state of the field and their ideas about what we should be doing. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing an expert in the field of gender and STEM and communicating science. As always, if you like my podcast, please hit like and share it with your friends. Come join us on my Facebook discussion group, The Rational View, uh, if you want to chat with the experts. Dr. Marin McKinnon's original degree was in marine science, where after the novelty of moving intertidal snails with a paint scraper wore off, she discovered that talking about her research to other people brought her far closer to her conservation goals than her actual project ever could. This led her to the field of science communication, where she has stayed ever since, working in a range of roles and countries. Marin enjoys the diverse issues science communication allows her to explore, applying her innovative thinking and problem-solving skills. Marin has worked and conducted qualitative and quantitative research nationally and internationally in both non-academic and academic roles. She regularly contributes to ABC Radio on ABC Sydney's Nightlife and Radio National's Research Filter, talking about interesting science from around the world. Marin designs and delivers science communication workshops as well as workshops specifically for women in STEM. Marin's research contributes to a better understanding of the relationship between science, media, and the public. She conducts research which explores why publics react and respond to scientific issues the way they do in a variety of different disciplines, including public health and conservation science. She is actively building a research program exploring the influence of equity, inclusion, and intersectionality in STEM, especially STEM communication. Dr. McKinnon, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. So this struck me uh, in your bio. Why were you moving intertidal snails? <laughs> Yeah, it's a question I often ask myself during the course of that research. <laughs> it was, um, I was really looking, so there's a, a species of limpet and they're like really slow moving, very small cows. They have this raspy tongue and they scrape algae off the rocks. And I thought, what happens if you have lots of limpets and they're all grazing in a particular area? What does that do to the uh, diversity of the species in that in that area. So I had okay. some some sections where I'd leave them alone, others where I'd remove half of them, and others where I'd remove all of them. And uh, yeah, that was that was why I was moving. <laughs> <laughs> and you you came to the realization that this wasn't achieving your personal goals. Tell me a bit about your journey to to becoming a 
a communications expert and, and gender issues person? It was actually a mid paint, scrape and count. Um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> I really wanted, I grew up by the beach and I really wanted to do something to help protect this environment, which I loved, you know, and the beaches was and still is my happy place, even though I live inland now. Uh, and I was counting the snails. So once you move the, once you move the limpets, then you actually have to count what's left. And so I was counting these tiny little snail species. If you imagine, um, poppy seeds, they're about that big and, and that, yeah, that painful oh, wow. so trying to count these so I'm head down bum up on a rock platform and I saw two kids there was about um girl who was about eight boy her younger brother probably about six and I could see them watching me like crazy lady what the heck is she doing <laughs> and eventually they came over and they said, what are you doing I said oh I'm, I'm counting the species that live here no, like the animals that live there, like animals, what animals? What are you talking about? So I said, oh, look, well, you've got all of these different creatures. So you've got this one and I was showing them all of the different animals that were living all over the rocks. And eventually I was satisfied that I wasn't completely nuts. So they all left. <laughs> and then a little while later, um, the, the younger brother was kicking at some barnacles on the rock platform and his older sisters come charging over, smacked him upside the head and said, don't do that, you'll hurt the animals. And it was one of those real, I felt like a cartoon character, you know, where the light bulb appears. And I was like, oh, if I talk to people about the place that they're in, if I talk to them about what's going on, that can actually change things. And at that time, trying to get into marine science, I could get a PhD and possibly still not get a job. Or even if I did, I would have been earning roughly the same amount as I was waitressing. So I was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, okay, what am I doing here? Let's let's explore this talky thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, went into science communication um, and answered an ad in the newspaper. Uh, so a physical newspaper that immediately gives people clues as to my age. <laughs> but it uh, was an ad that says, do you have a science degree? Do you love to travel? I'm like, well, yes and yes, tell me mm. more. And so went and did a one-year program and that completely changed my, well, completely changed my life. <laughs> it was a one-year program, like an educational program? Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a graduate diploma then. It's a master's program now. And you learn a lot about science communication, so the theory, the fundamentals, but the practical part of it was you went on the road with the science circus and uh, did science shows for schools and community groups, and it's still running today. I think it's about 35 years old. Oh, that sounds like fun. It's awesome. Yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. So I'm interested, um, I'm trying to do a few podcasts on gender issues in STEM fields and explore, you know, where are we at and where do we need to get to? So uh, you're an expert in this. You've done some research. Um, how are we doing? Where, where are we at with, with gender equity in STEM? Oh, it really depends where you look. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, I worked as a woman in STEM or in STEM communication for 10 years before I started doing uh, any kind of academic work. And then it's something that I've sort of come to and really started engaging with in the last five years, I suppose. And that seemed to coincide with roughly the same time scale when I don't know if it's the same in, in Canada, but certainly in Australia, it was kind of like, oh, wait, women do this stuff too. It's like, no, really? Welcome. So <laughs> there's this realization. I think there's there's a lot of realization now of 
actually it is different for women and it's and it's different for different women as well it's not enough to sort of say oh well there's men's issues and there's women's issues there are a lot of issues on both sides but I think gender is probably the most visible issue for people to tackle in some disciplines there's already parity more or less certainly in the junior levels it's once you know you have the the scissorgraph so you have more women than men perhaps in the in the um, early career stages, but as soon as you get to the senior stages, then suddenly it completely flips. So there are some disciplines that are doing really well uh, and are making good inroads and, if anything, have more women than men, but then there are others which are very much very, very far behind and possibly based on current, um, current practices and current uh, – initiatives, I suppose, will still never reach gender equity. Hmm. The observation you make is interesting. The, the, the junior levels are, are close to equity, but the senior levels re- retain this inversion. It's not all fields of STEM, like some fields, or is it, or is it all fields? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to answer for all fields in all countries. So it's fairly consistent in most fields that the senior positions are held by men. Hmm. Uh, in in my experience and in my context. So yeah, there may be exceptions to that rule, but if you wanted to make a broad, sweeping, partially substantiated <laughs> statement, that would be <laughs> That's just what we're here for in the rational view. <laughs> no, that's the reason we're talking to you is to, is to get the, the good statements that are backed up by evidence to out to the people. And, you know, so we're not dealing in anecdotes and, and estimates. So it seems... And, and this is kind of my feeling from talking to other people as well, that there's a lot of good programs getting women to enter STEM fields. As you say, the junior levels are roughly equal, but the women don't stick around. What What is the barrier? Uh, why do women leave STEM fields and not continue on to these senior positions? Are they being held back? Is it... Well, what, what do you think are the factors that contribute to that? <laughs> How long is this podcast? How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> so this is something um, I was involved with, uh, a 10-year ten, a ten plan for women in STEM, um, so the decadal plan for women in STEM um, organised through the Australian Academy of Science. And we set out to really explore this. So we looked at all of the available evidence, all of the available data, and we also conducted national consultations. The short answer is it begins pretty much from childhood. So you are, from the time you're born, you are being exposed to these gender gender stereotypes and, and gender roles. So if you imagine going down to your local department store, you want to buy a present for a niece or a nephew, there's a very distinct girl section and boy section. And the boys have all of the construction, the, um, you know, the trucks, the mechanics, the engineering related stuff, the, the dirty stuff, and it's all blue or darker colors. And the girls get lots of pinks and purples and it's fluffy animals and it's things to look after and mother and nurse. Mm-hmm. And they immediately start to set these expectations of this is what girls do and that's what boys do and that then gets reinforced so although you may have some excellent teachers and this is absolutely me not putting this on teachers at all like society is to blame (laughs) it's it's all of us Uh, but then you also have some teachers who may be operating on their own uh, potentially unconscious bias as well oh boys are going to be more interested in this and uh, are you sure you want to do that 
you know, that, that, that could be quite hard, dear. Um, and there, there's, this resonates with a lot of stories that I've heard from women around the world as well, sort of teachers wanting to encourage but in trying to encourage and support can also start to seed some of these, these insecurities and doubts. Mm-hmm. And so once you get to that, then you actually enter into the upper levels and you go to university. And uh, if you look at computer science and engineering, it's really common for me to hear from, from female students, I'm the only female in a room full of 50 men. Yeah. It's, it's different and it's difficult. And you have to have either a support network within or external to or really strong resilience and a desire to persist in that environment. Um, Some of them are great and they do have male allies and supporters and and there's no issue whatsoever, but others find that it it isn't very welcoming and they are made to feel very other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that can just continue. And you do have good people making a difference everywhere around the world. Trouble is you do have to also then try and counteract all of the other things. Yeah. 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 I've spoken to, to women in, in the fields of STEM and, and that's one message that I hear consistently uh, going into a male dominated field. Uh, like you have to work twice as hard. Well, that's not inspirational to a lot of people. <laughs> it's a very difficult field. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's and it's interesting because there is this concept of merit. Well, the best person will, will get the job. Like why do we actually need to have, say, gender quotas or something like that? If it's merit-based, then the right person will be getting it. Okay, but take a step back from that. Who is determining what is best? Who is actually saying this is what merit looks like? They're probably a bunch of middle-aged, white, Western men uh, who have had a support network, who have had every opportunity and every access to every resource. And if they think, well, this is what good looks like, then everybody else needs to meet this benchmark. But if you don't have that social capital, that access to the resources, the, the mentor or the supporter who's helping to bring you along, if you don't have the networks to ask for internships or opportunities like that, uh, if you are a carer for a child, um, a sibling, another family member, a parent, you have more limited opportunity. And so uh, even from low socioeconomic backgrounds as well, you may not have that same access to opportunity and quality education. So by sort of set, drawing the line in the sand and saying, this is what merit looks like and you know, this is the target and if we just use this, then everyone has equal opportunity. No, no, they don't. And the opportunity started way back. So that's why we do use things like uh, research opportunity statements or uh, blinded selection processes or, you know, the, the affirmative action measures, because not everyone is starting from the same place. Indeed. One, one thing that um, I notice is that the career path for academics is not suitable or not conducive to someone who wants to raise a family. Uh, <laughs> you, you basically have to go on starvation, slave wages for postdoctoral positions for three, six, nine years before you can get a, a professorship or a, an appointment at a university. And, you know, the way that that society is right now that women are expected to be responsible for children and men are expected to go into the workforce. It just doesn't 
work for a lot of women. If, if you, if you want to, you know, if, if it's the woman's responsibility to be the nurturer and the caregiver, the way that science STEM is set up just doesn't work for that. Is there anything we can do about to, to fix that? What should we be doing? <laughs> well, realistically, there is nothing beyond giving birth and breastfeeding. And I mean, some women physically can't breastfeed. So even that isn't an, a fundamental prerequisite. Beyond that, there is nothing that says men can't nurture and, and care. And I think I know my own my own husband and my brother-in-law they're very involved in their in their kids lives and their relationship with their children is very important to them and I think for most if not all dads it's the same um and even you know, in any partnership you're going to have a caregiver and someone who is working but you can also shoulder that load equally if it's financially possible to do so but I think there is this kind of social stigma yes. or this expectation that you are man, you shall not cook or clean or nurture small people. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. that's doing a disservice to men and I think it's doing a disservice to their kids too because they, they don't get that same kind of bonding opportunity and that same kind of relationship until later in life. Uh, and, and sometimes it, it ends up being an opportunity lost. And I don't think anybody benefits from, from this existing status quo. Uh, I mean, in the Nordic states, they've uh, enforced sort of this 50-50 split. And while it's still not a perfect system, it also demonstrates that the world doesn't spin off its axis if you actually ask both parents to parent equally. So I think there's it really comes back to these societal expectations of who does what. Yeah, I think if there's an expectation that men will take time off to nurture their own kids, uh, that goes a long ways to, to leveling the workload. Because... In a lot of countries, the, the women are the only ones that take time off. And whether that's because of policies or tradition, it basically has a lasting burden on them as the kids move through school and other things. They are responsible for that whole workload by inertia, effectively. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what are parental leave policies like in Australia? I know in Canada we have... Um, you know, we've opened it up to, to dads to take parental leave. I, I don't know if it's required that, you know, they should have some use it or lose it uh, part for the men to, to encourage them to, to take parental leave and, and nurture their kids. Definitely. It's, it's, it's varied, but it's changing. Um, and it's changed recently, and I can't remember precisely what. So I think in some private sector companies, there is actually one company that's helped that started to offer a year of paid parental leave for either parent. So even if you aren't, if you're not the one who gave birth, you still have the the opportunity to access that. So I, I mean, for for us, um, we get uh, what is it, twelve weeks of paid parental leave, and we can have. Um, time like I took a year off when I had my child mm -hmm. uh, so you can you still have that security of the job waiting for you the money runs out before then yes. but if you, uh, you do have that time available to you and that job security when you come back so I think it's a minimum 
minimum six or 12 weeks for for mums or the person who has given birth or who is the primary caregiver of, of, the, um, of the child. And then it used to be a fortnight for the secondary carer. So it's a little bit of time, but I think they've actually made it longer now. I think maybe it might be up to six weeks for them as well. Okay. Yeah, it's similar in Canada. I think um, we've, ex- you know, it's not paid parental leave, but they have to keep your job for you if you take the time off. Uh, and I think they've gone up to 18 months now combined between the two parents. Awesome. Yeah, that's a really good step in the right direction. It's good, um, but I think you need to go even further. I think you need to overcome the social stigma of men taking time off because otherwise they won't take it. I know when I I had my first child, you know, I was like, I'm in my career. I need to stay here. And there's definitely a stigma that, that needs to be worked out, I think. Or broken down. Yeah, there is, and it's and it's international. Like we we moved overseas when when our daughter was very little, and um, my husband was taking care of her, so he was wearing her in a baby carrier. She was only probably about I don't know nine months old, and he was stopped in a shopping mall by a woman from the local culture with her child saying, what are you doing wearing that child? Where is the mother? You are shaming yourself by wearing this child. <laughs> and so it's, wow. it was kind of one of those, okay, there's a lot of work to do here internationally. And, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And to me it does come back to dads are missing out. Like don't get me wrong, raising kids is hard yards and there are some days that feel like they last a year, but <laughs> within each of those there are really special moments as well which dads often don't get to see and experience and, and that's to their detriment and it's a shame. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I touched on some of these issues in a previous podcast that I did on the the parental gap and how that affects income gaps and I think it's, it's doubly applicable here in, in STEM fields. I think also because of these unequal responsibilities in the home uh, that exist, women have been leaving the workforce during the pandemic in much higher numbers than men. Um, I see that this is going to, I think this is going to have a big effect on our equity levels going forward and we're going to have to work doubly hard to, to fix this. Absolutely. It's, and it's happening, it's happening everywhere. So you have obviously, the casualization of the academic workforce. You have people living from contract to contract with no certainty. They were a lot of the ones that immediately lost their jobs and quite a few, the majority of them, at least in our context, were female and admin staff. Um, But the other thing that people noticed, journal editors were noticing during the pandemic is the number of papers submitted went up by at least 50%, but only for men. <laughs> uh, so some journals oh. this massive uptick, of uh, but it was all male authors because the women were trying to write papers or put it together a grant while homeschooling, and yeah, it was. I saw a great tweet, and uh, <laughs> it was some woman saying, "The next person who, who told me that to tell me that Isaac Newton invented calculus while in lockdown is going to receive my three-year-old in the mail." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know what you're feeling. <laughs> yeah, we've been um, homeschooling our kindergartner throughout this, uh, and that's not a job that I had planned for. And no. I, 
I'm starting to feel that uh, kindergarten teachers are underpaid. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. All teachers. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of good factors to, to keep aware of. I think there are also additional expectations on women once they get into STEM fields to try to pull other women into the field. So there's an extra responsibility that these women feel to be active in trying to equalize the workforce. You know, you go to a women in STEM event, it's of course all women in these events, running the events, organizing it, trying to reach out, do presentations, be role models. What What's the responsibility of men who have gotten positions in STEM to help address this, gen, to, to address gender equity? Really, I think they need to be allies uh, and to step up and shoulder some of this work. And they need they need to be the ones to help call out the bad behaviour. So there, there's so many, there's so many things here. So yeah, you have these women in STEM events and you have often the same women who are representing all women on the different committees. Um, so particularly if you are a woman of colour or uh, a woman who identifies as having a disability, then you are invited onto every committee known to men because, oh, look, you, you feel quite a few of our diversity characteristics. That's wonderful. Thank you. But then that puts this inordinate burden on individuals, which again takes time away from their ability to teach, to research, to write grant applications. And so it becomes this horrifying, untenable position of fight for your gender and people similar to you or work on your own career. And you can't ask people to, to make that decision either. So realistically, I think if there is a women in STEM event, I think the knee-jerk response is often for men to go, well, that's not for me, or maybe I don't, I won't be welcome there, or maybe I shouldn't contribute to this. No, absolutely, please do. Like, get involved, help organize, show support. Um, you know, be a part of the process because it's about changing norms, and we can only do that if people see them starting to change. And maybe that might be a bridge too far for some. So then it's a case of okay, be aware if you are in a team meeting, for example, be aware of how people are responding to each other. Is there someone that never gets to speak up, male or female? Uh, is there someone who makes a suggestion, it isn't really acknowledged or listened to, but someone more dominant says, some, says exactly the same thing and they get all the credit, call it back. If you mm -hmm. think it's a good idea and people are walking past it, bring attention back to it. Like there are lots of little ways that you can help to support and to elevate the voice of, of women and minoritized groups without having to put on a shirt, wave a flag, do any of those things. So there are tiny little things that you can do that would honestly make so much difference because it's these tiny little microaggressions every single day which really they're, they're kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back <laughs> in the end. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, that's something that I've learned over the years and become more aware of the, the more, you know, originally I was, I was completely ignorant to a lot of these things. And, you know, I would talk over women in meetings or, you know, I just didn't you know without thinking. And, you know, I've become much more aware of dynamics of, you know, people are being dominant speakers and allowing other people to express their opinion who aren't so dominant in, in the conversation. And that's, it's, it's something I hadn't even thought of, right? 
and a lot of these things are things that you you don't think about until you do think about them, I guess. And a lot of the time I think if you don't have it done to you, you don't conceive that it happens to other people. Um, So, yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm very aware that, you know, I'm a white, middle-class, cisgender woman in a fairly female female dominated or at least an equitable discipline. Um, so my experience is going to be extraordinarily different to a, a woman of color with a disability uh, who is from a different cultural background working in something like computer science or engineering. Um, so it, it's, you can't sort of use your own experience. The other really good thing about having that level of self-awareness that you've described is it makes you a more efficient, effective, pleasant, productive member of a team and a better manager, supervisor, um, mentor. So it's not even, if it's not palatable to someone to go, oh, I don't need to help others like that, think of it as, okay, then if you aspire to levels of leadership and you need to demonstrate leadership and bring people along with you, then maybe by being a decent human being, you can actually help yourself. Who knows? Indeed. Now I'm getting cynical. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's good. And thank you for the compliment. (laughs) Um, Another thing, that uh, someone I interviewed um, brought up was the fact that there seems to be a cult of genius in some uh, heavily male-dominated disciplines where, uh, you know, people identify the very top end as, as men because of, you know, physical or whatever theories they have. But there's this, this cult uh, that is exclusive to women. Have you encountered that? Uh, yeah, in various forms. Um, they exist everywhere. <laughs> Not necessarily like you can you can replace the word genius with with anything else. But yeah, there is this sense of you're different. You don't think about things the same way as us. So you probably won't feel comfortable here. And that can be uh, very explicit and overt, um, you know, gentlemen's clubs, uh, or it can be more, more subtle and insidious. And it's getting back to those microaggressions, um, that we're talking about this before. And it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, ultimately human beings are herd animals. Nobody likes being isolated and out by themselves. They do like to belong to a particular group. And so, you know, you would have noticed in my bio, it was a conscious use of the word public. So in science communication, we, we don't talk about the general public as being one amorphous blob. There are lots of groups that are gathered around similar interests and identities and it's okay. It's those groups which we use to help build our sense of identity and everything else. So it's, it's understandable that people sort of cluster around these common things. It's just unfortunate that tends to happen to the exclusion of others but look i look at any high school i'll tell you where that starts (laughs) (laughs) yeah indeed indeed you mentioned um earlier about the um, men submitting more papers is that uh, is that published data or is that uh, you do you have a where'd you get that information from i don't know if it's been i haven't followed it up so it was it was more anecdata from um journal editors which uh, i think it came out about May or June last year. Uh, so it's based on their submissions data. So 
not peer reviewed, but certainly a process of peer review has gone on there. Uh, and it wasn't a, it's a, a data source. Yeah, it is a data source, definitely. So it wasn't from gut feel. It was definitely more than one journal editor going, this is new. Okay, interesting. Um, so, yeah, and I, I don't know if it was discipline specific. I think it did appear in the humanities as well, which you'd expect. There are women in humanities too. Um, so, yeah, I think. It would be interesting. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Pa- uh, there are papers out there on it now. I'm sure. Well, that, that that is an interesting observation and very goes right to the the societal bias of of child rearing is a woman's job. Definitely. So, this is this has been very interesting. So, what about your your current research? What are you What are you working on right now? Um, right now, what am I going to actually think? So (laughs) it's like, I know, I know I have research there somewhere. Um, so right now it's kind of a broad exploration of stuff. Um, so one of the projects is looking at representations of science in the media. So looking at what disciplines sort of get cut through, but who is actually the face of Australian science? So who gets, who's writing about it? who's being quoted directly or indirectly and how are they being presented? Like, is it actually incorporating any other kind of diversity characteristics? So that's uh, about a three-year project and a very large spreadsheet. So I'm hoping to get that finished by the end of this year with uh, with the help of some students. Um, I work with another sort of regional network and we have a strong focus on intersectionality. So helping uh, universities and research organisations understand intersectionality and how that affects the employees in their workplace. So we have what we call an intersectionality walk where people assume personas. So they're given all of these characteristics and then they stand in a circle and they're read a scenario. They're just starting a new job. And so they're, they're read scenarios about their first week. And each, at the end of each short scenario, if they can't participate fully based on what they understand of their persona, they take a step back. And so at the end of this first run-through, you have one or two people who are really close uh, to their starting point, and then so many other people have taken you know, 5, 10, 15 steps away from where they've started because of the tiny little things along the way that have prevented them from fully engaging and contributing in their new role. Hmm. And so then we get people to talk about, okay, well, how can we make life better for your persona? What kind of things could you implement in this workplace? And so we make all of those changes that they suggest and then they do the walk again. And some people still do have to take a step back but the end result is everybody is so much closer to the centre. And it's extremely powerful because it gets people to literally put themselves in somebody else's shoes and experience what it would be like for them. So that's something that we're working on at the moment. And uh, That sounds very interesting. Just trying to roll that everywhere. (laughs) Could you just give a quick definition of intersectionality because it's not a term that I'm familiar with? Sure, sorry. Uh, it is. It was originally coined by um, a legal scholar in the United States, Kimberly Crenshaw. So she identified intersectionality as the overlapping um, disadvantage brought upon, like cre- created and compounded because of the different identities that you have. So, um, you know, the example I gave before, I'm a white cisgender 
middle-class woman in a female, roughly female-dominant field, whereas I have, um, you know, a friend who is a trans woman working in primary education, um, actually secondary education, um, and who has found, you know, that has been quite different. And then you might find somebody else who is from a a cultural background, a language um, other than English. They might be from a low socioeconomic area. They might be a person of colour. They might also be gay. And so you get all of these characteristics and each comes with their own particular Bias, uh, biases perpetrated against them or barriers and they all compound and so it's not just about if we address the gender inequity then everything's going to be fixed well no because it's going to fix it for some women but not for all of them so it, it might work for women but is it going to work for women of color just as well is it going to work with, for women of color with a disability just as well so it's yeah, intersectionality is just about the, that overlapping and compounding um, disadvantage. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I, I could tell by context, but that's very helpful to have uh, that definition. And it, that does seem to be a very powerful um, um, exercise to, to work through, to put these people in, in the shoes of others, because I think that's that's the first the first step is to is to make people think about or be empathic to others um, that don't have the same set of circumstances. I guess it's, it's easy to have the the circumstances of others be invisible um, if you're not forced to think about them. So I, that's very a very good way to do it. I like I like that approach. Thank you. <laughs> we do too. <laughs> <laughs> but so you've been. You actually go on the radio, you say, and doing science communication. That, that's that's pretty cool. Tell me about that. Uh, so I do that with a couple of my colleagues. We sort of have a rotating roster. So with the national broadcaster in Australia, they uh, lots of different um, programs targeting the entire country, uh, different areas. So we go on and uh, we generally pick three science stories of interest, so research papers that might have come out, press releases. So in one night I can be talking about anything from uh, astrophysics, probably badly, um, (laughs) (laughs) medicine, mental health, uh, environmental stuff. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a really broad gamut. It's it's fantastic but utterly terrifying because you're talking about someone else's research. It's a huge range. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you don't always, actually you rarely, if ever, get given the script beforehand. So you have to try and predict what the producers and the, the presenters are going to find interesting and going to ask questions about, and so, which may take you on a, a bit of a tangent. <laughs> so you're not researching these in advance you're, you're, or you're not given, you actually have to do this, you're put on the spot. <laughs> Pretty much. So, yeah, if, if I'm lucky, I might get 12 hours um, of, of knowing what I'm going to talk about. But generally it's trying to, to cram cram about three research papers into about an hour of prep. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a white knuckle ride. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, though. It is. You, you do learn a lot. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I've enjoyed quite a bit about communicating um, on the podcast, I'm researching quite a bit of things and and. You know, it's the the breadth of things that that really interests me, and especially communicating science is something that's one of the reasons that I started this podcast is to is to provide you know a rational, balanced view on current social issues and public policy because 
things seem to be going off the rails. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much information that people have available to them now. And so the, the trusted spokesperson role can be picked up by so many people and the ability to try and verify information if you don't know, it's not even a matter of understanding the science, it's understanding what is actually a reliable, valid study and, and who is a reliable information source, like having the, the basic information literacy skills as well. It's it's a mess out there. It's awful. <laughs> yeah, social media has really messed us up, I think, in a lot of ways. It, it kind of presents these, these echo chambers where you can feel supported in whatever position you decide to take and it's very comfortable for people of all beliefs oh, yeah we, we, again we like finding our own little tribe and the people who think and feel the same way as we do it's very reassuring i, I think that seems to be me to be the, the best thing that social media does is find other people with the same beliefs as you it's, it just it's failing horribly to filter any of these beliefs yeah. or challenge them it definitely is i think it's it's a good challenge and i've had somebody i've had somebody recommend this before create a social media account that is just your spare and it's you you do sort of the anti you so you create a profile that is based on your exact opposite and you follow people that have views diametrically opposed to you so that way you have your own you have your own profile but then you have your anti profile and that will expose you to the other side of of thinking and different opinions and different ideas so it's you're still going to get the algorithm effects of social media but you're going to get two very different ends and so that's a sort of a way of looking inside your own information bubble and just making sure it is diverse and healthy in there although you know some of the things which you may usher in with your anti-bubble may not be, may not be <laughs> healthy for you but you know <laughs> it's very hard to do <laughs> I, I you know one of the reasons i started this as well is that i get drawn into these battles with with people on the internet and it's, they just go down a rabbit hole of pain <laughs> and, and because it's such an impersonal interface you know people are are happy to to yell and and throw expletives and and just be rude and it it, it rarely seems to be um civil I mean, we need, what we need is a civil way to discuss our differences and realize that we're all people. <laughs> Definitely. Because it's easy to caricature the other side, the way these things are set up. And most groups do. I mean, all groups do. It's just you caricature the other side and you laugh at them. And, and you have groups that are doing this on both sides of every issue, as far as I've found. Yeah, absolutely. Both sides are doing it. And it's, it is one of those things where... Your, what is your end goal? Is it to keep open the dialogue or just to prove that you're right? And if you if you want to just assert your dominance and the power of your intellect over everyone, then, oh, look, the internet, you could live there quite happily forever because you're always going to find someone <laughs> who disagrees with you. But I think a question that we get asked a lot in workshops that we run uh, for scientists and researchers and policymakers is, how do we deal with these contested spaces? And it's like you say, you have to let go of the science and the facts for a minute and just connect with the other 
person as a person. So listening underneath the resistance, why are they actually against this particular thing? Because quite often it's not the say the, the vaccination or the policy or the whatever which they are adamant and opposed to. It's something underneath which is driving that, be it fear for themselves, their family, their children, concerns about you know, economic futures or sustainability or any of those things. And so if you start to connect on those values and beliefs instead, then you may still never agree, but at least you're still connecting as humans and you can find that common ground to talk to each other and that can help at least you know, keep things slightly more civil perhaps. Not for everyone, perhaps. No, that's, that's very good advice. And then I've been given that several times and I think that is, is key for the people that want to make a difference. You need to, you need to not come in guns blazing and arguing about the truth because it just makes people clam up you, you know you have to you have to reach out and make personal connections and and realize that the people on the other side have are not all evil yeah <laughs> this has been a lot of fun chatting with you i'm getting towards the end of our time period here uh, i'd like to ask you a question that i ask a, a lot of my guests uh and that is what's your favorite science fiction do you like uh, books, TVs? Is there movies? Books. I do. I am a Star Wars person. Um, Star Wars, yeah, but the originals. I mean, the, the latest stuff was, was good, but I still like the original. Um, I don't mind the odd book. Um, and I guess, like, something that you can sit down and watch, Star Trek Voyager, yeah. that was that was pretty good. <laughs> yes, yes. That was a good series. Uh, yeah. Need to revisit that. I think I think it's on Netflix. <laughs> Everything's on Netflix. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Marin, for coming and chatting with us. Uh, really appreciate you coming and, and giving us your the the value of your of your research and your work. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.